Hi, my name is Joe Sambatero, and I worked with Access Fund and local climbing organizations for 12 years and now work with Tulalip Tribes, which is a tribal entity here in the Northwest. Oh, right on. That's cool. What is that? Well, uh, my career in land conservation has evolved. And I started at a land trust uh, when it was called Cascade Land Conservancy. And that's really where I got my, my background and crash course in all things conservation. So I was able to take that to Access Fund and apply it to both my passions of conservation and climbing for 12 years. And then uh, went back to the same land trust and managed a team doing land conservation work and stewardship. And now I think I've finally evolved at a point in my career where I rather uh, work for a sovereign nation, a tribal sovereign nation, and help them in their mission to conserve land for everything from salmon habitat to treaty rights to cultural uses. And I really do think that's something I'm personally excited about, but able to apply my professional background in a way where I'm continuously learning. So I'm still learning a lot. I'm in week four. I finished about a month there at Tulalip Tribes. So lots of things to do and uh, a little bit more resources behind everything compared to the nonprofit world. So yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. And I get what you're saying about the resources of the nonprofit world. I do a lot of work in the nonprofit world and yeah, resources are always limited. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, well, I, I asked you to come on because you were really crucial in a lot of our um, land acquisitions in Unaweep uh, during the time which I was on the board for the Climbers Coalition. And so I got to know you and work with you through there. And I just... I. I wanted to get you on to kind of get like the, the access on perspective of uh, what it looked like on that. And, you know, like I, I also plan to get a couple of people from the WCCC on there to get more input outside of just my uh, personal experience with it. But you were on high on my list of people to get on the show. I think that a lot of people, especially in this area, like climbers that go in and enjoy the canyon, they have no idea, you know, what the access and the land management and all that stuff looks like in the canyon. You know, I wanted to kind of put something like this out there to give people an idea of what that looks like, you know, from the management perspective, not just from the climbers perspective. You know, my time on the the board for the Climbers Coalition, um, I was mostly the one that organized like the trail days and crag cleanups and all that stuff. But, you know, I was also had a little bit to do with some of the, the access issues and things like that. So um, I definitely plan to get Jesse Zacker on here at some point so he could talk more about that because he had way more experience with that than I did. I did want to kind of talk about like what access looks like through the canyon. And I actually created a map a little while back that's on my website. Um, if somebody listening wants to to look it up, it's uh, rocktorapid.com uh, forward slash Unuit dash podcast. And there's a map on there. And I'm just going to kind of like walk through the map, starting with like the Grand Junction side or the Whitewater side. As you start to drive down 141, you you go through a section of BLM land. And most of that property through there, this is like the Nine Mile Hill section where it's mostly Burrow Canyon sandstone. There's a little bit of Dakota in there, but most of Dakota is not big enough to be climbable. For the most part, that's all public land. There is one section of private property. There's a, a mailbox on the right as you're driving through. And that takes you down a road that takes you to uh, some private property. Um, but otherwise, that's pretty wide open and it's it's pretty much open access. And the BLM considers us to be the number one user group in that area. 
Um, now there is something where, uh, even though it's all BLM land through there on the west side of the road, that's all Grand Junction field office. And then on the left side of the, I'm sorry, on the east side of the road, that's, uh, the Dominguez Escalante NCA or national conservation area. And what that means is that's regulated and managed a little bit differently than it is on the west side of the road. Um, it's managed out of a different office and by different people. And the regulations, because it's a national conservation area, are a little bit more. So there, there's no camping on that side of the road. There hasn't been any kind of a, a bolting ban or anything over there. But it's definitely a little bit more heavily regulated than it is on the west side of the road. Now, there is a Dominguez Canyon Wilderness Area that is in that Dominguez Escalante NCA. Um, and that wilderness area is an area where you're not allowed to put fixed anchors in, uh, either by hand drilling or mechanized or uh, motorized drilling. Uh, but that doesn't uh, touch the Unaweep area. It's a, a little bit further east than, than the area that goes through Unaweep. Um, and then as you head up Canyon, you get into a section of red sandstone. And that's where the private property really starts. And the private property is alongside the road there. And most of the, the red sandstone cliffs that you see through that section are all private property. Uh, there are a couple of small pockets where th there is some red sandstone on public land, uh, but they are pretty small pockets. As you continue on, uh, you start to get into the gneiss, or a lot of people think of it as granite, but it is a metamorphic gneiss. And that's where private property really just starts to lock in all the cliffs. And especially in that early canyon section where a lot of the, the climbing is, uh, you know, things like Sunday Wall, Quarry Wall, Mother's Buttress, Mighty Mouse. Uh, those are all in that, that beginning part there where on the west side of the, the road, the cliffs are included in the private property. And then on the east side of the road, most of the cliffs are behind the private property, but that private property locks all that in so that we don't have public access to it as easily. Um, there are uh, certain areas where like uh, with Mighty Mouse in particular, there's a corner of BLM land that touches the road that gives us legal public access to be able to get to Mighty Mouse Wall. And then from there, we can hike. Like if you wanted to hike all the way out to Rube Buttress, you can go... I think it's like two and a half miles of bushwhacking, uh, but you can legally access Rube Buttress going that way, but it, it becomes kind of a, a real hassle. And that's why it hasn't really been climbed much since uh, the old 1997 Casey Bomb book came out. On the west side of the road, you've got all of that cliff line that's like locked in by uh, public, or I'm sorry, by private property. And the cliff is owned by whoever owns the property in front. And that's kind of where back in 91 or 92, the access fund came in and bought the Sunday Wall, the Hidden Valley Wall, and Fortress Wall. And then there's also a, a legal easement that was negotiated to allow a trail to get up to uh, the Hidden Valley Wall and Fortress Wall. Even though you're crossing, uh, crossing private property, you're still uh, allowed to because of the uh, easement. Um, and then you know later on, the Mother's Buttress area was purchased. And then after that, the uh, Cave Buttress and a little bit of Television Wall, but mostly... Uh, a buyer's wall was purchased during the same time as that. Um, and that's kind of why I, I wanted to get you on here because you were heavily involved in a lot of that land accusation. But before we get to that, I want to just kind of continue down the canyon a little bit more. Uh, so as we continue on down the canyon from there, we get into like where the sun towers are. And that's an area where there is a BLM access because the corner of the BLM land touches the road. Um, but also Bob and Lisa Eagle live right there and they have built some trails and allow access through their property to get to the Beehive and the Twin Owls. Uh, continuing a little bit further on down, we get to the Wildcat area and that's where the National Forest Land 
corner of that touches the road and gives access to all the cliff band over there at the Wildcat area. But then from there, all the way down to uh, pretty much Unaweep Wall, uh, there's a couple of pockets where there's uh, public land that touches the road, um, but pretty much it's all private property from there down to where you get to Unaweep Wall and Fake News. And then you continue down and you end up getting into like Red Sandstone again and you start getting into the Gateway area. And that's kind of like a, a real quick rundown of like what the canyon looks like. And I, I haven't done the actual math to determine what the real number is, but you know, just from driving through that canyon and looking around at you know what I see as potential climbing climbable cliff, I think we only have access, like legal access, to about ten to fifteen percent of the climbable rock in that canyon. And that's where uh, coming in and trying to buy the property and negotiating access to different things really comes into play and why it's important to to have conversations like this where people understand like how delicate the access is and what it takes to actually to come about and and make these things happen so i appreciate you coming on and i i look forward to hearing more about like what the access fund side of of all this looks like because from my angle i came in after mother's buttress was already purchased uh it was purchased mm-hmm. by the petersons and i believe the subdivision had happened but like that's right about when i had come in uh where did you come in on that process i came in uh at the start of 2009 so also like you when that uh mother's buttress first parcel was being acquired but to piece together the history of Unaweep Canyon, because uh, a lot of that had been lost um, with institutional knowledge and, and uh, past folks leaving. So I had to piece it together so we can transfer some of those properties from what was called this Access Fund Land Foundation over to Access Fund and then manage it as an accredited land trust. So I had to dive back into the history to the early 90s to, to figure out what was going on, you know, clean up some of the ownership and title issues and uh, work with everyone to to get a better understanding. And uh, I think you did a great overview. You were speaking my language. I was following along <laughs> in Gaia Maps, looking at the different ownership while you were talking because, you know, most, most folks do not realize how uh, divided up a lot of our lands are. When we look across the climbing area or landscape, you might not realize where those parcel lines are that you know, that maybe the BLM holds the property over here, but over there, someone holds the mineral rights and someone else holds the land. And a lot right. of that is, uh, you know, it, it, it takes a lot more digging to figure out, you know, is land protected? Is the property open for public access or climbing? And uh, it, it takes a lot of work to, to make sure everyone has that information at their fingertips. So thanks for putting together that map. Just to dive yeah. back a little further, and I don't know, maybe you've already chatted with someone about this, but before we go into the more of the climbing access conversation, what one thing I remember that was really cool about Unaweep Canyon was that in its Ute name, it was it literally means Canyon of Two Mouths. So it's so unique that the water both drains to the east and west. It's one of the yeah. few canyons like that uh, in not just this region, but I think pretty pretty broadly. And so it has a really unique geological history. And like you said, you're going from sandstone to granite and then back to sandstone. So it's it's really beautiful and 
kind of interesting to spend some time looking at the geological history there. Uh, it was one of the things that really drew me to to the site and a place where I wanted to spend some time and visit when I could and and do everything I could to work with Western Colorado Climbers Coalition to help protect. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I, I do plan on getting a friend of mine's a geologist and I plan on getting him on the show where he's going to like just totally geek out on on the geology of the canyon. I really can't wait for that. I, I studied geology in college and almost became a, a geologist myself. So I, I totally geek out on it too. Um, what's really cool about the teaser. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's really cool about the rock is it's it's really old. Uh, I think it's like 1.7 billion years old on a planet that's 4.3 or 4.2 billion years old. So uh, it's some of the oldest exposed rock on the planet. And it's not the oldest. Uh, there's definitely, there's some stuff in Canada that's older, but it's kind of cool to to think about like this ancient rock that we just have access to. Uh, Black Canyon of the Gunnison is is a uh, same layer of rock as well. So yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Well, to fast forward a, a few billion years, uh, <laughs> my, m- when I started at Access Fund, we were also uh, fundraising and soon to launch the Access Fund Loan Conservation Program. So the idea was to provide local climbing organizations and Access Fund the capital to acquire certain climbing areas, because oftentimes uh, these areas came up for sale and the local entities didn't have the resources to, to go ahead and purchase it. And not only that, Access Fund has a and still has a really successful grant program but those grant awards were five ten thousand dollars maximum for an acquisition and as we know acquisitions or are generally a hundred thousand dollars or more so the only way the first mother's buttress acquisition was possible was due to some local climbers stepping up buying the property and then we went through a boundary line adjustment so that climbers could have their parking access and the climbing area, and they could have a you know a residential lot in that in that beautiful space over there. And that's where the grant went towards. So it went towards the Western Colorado Climbers Coalition securing that public piece of property, and those are successful. And it was a similar model that. Access Fund and other local climbers used in the early 90s. So back then, similar, there wasn't a, uh, you know, Access Fund was in its really early stages. It was, uh, as some may know, it was originally a committee of the American Alpine Club that eventually uh, formed as its own nonprofit. And so in those times, uh, it was it was three local climbers, Neil Bradford, Randall Taylor, and Richard Smith. And Rick Akamazo, who was uh, a board member and volunteer with Access Fund, worked on the, all the legal work to put together this four-way ownership, basically. And so together, they were able to acquire the you know, Sunday wall and hidden wall and access to the fortress wall. And um, that's what kicked it off. So that eventually was transferred over to the Access Fund Land Foundation and and so forth. But it's interesting to see how these land conservation efforts have evolved. There were some issues back then, I think, with some different perspectives about 
you know, whether these should be, you know, providing access to some of the other adjacent public lands and some differences of opinions. So when I came on board, Mother's Buttress was, uh, you know, a good success. We had Western Colorado Climbers Coalition formed as its own nonprofit, but we still had a little bit of title cleanup to do from back in the early 90s, actually. So I was able to really dive into the history, figure out, you know, where things maybe went a little off track and how to get it back together, uh, which allowed us in the future to be able to transfer those access fund properties to Western Colorado Climbers Coalition. So, so folks know, uh, taking a snapshot of today, uh, Western Colorado Climbers Coalition owns all those parcels, plus what Randall described, uh, the mother's buttress, cave buttress, and a portion of television wall. An access fund holds a permanent conservation easement to ensure that no matter whatever happens to WCCC, public access for the primary purpose of climbing is protected forever. So that way there's a, uh, you know, a backstop because we know that a lot of these, these efforts and these local climbing organizations really take the blood, sweat and tears of volunteers. And uh, as with any local group, sometimes uh, folks maybe volunteer for 10 years and you need to get more boards, board members on board and people like yourself maybe listening on board to help protect climbing access to keep everything going. And uh, you want to make sure that you have the, the tools and the entities working together with the same mission to make sure that everything we've been doing the last three decades stays there for the next three decades and generations after that yeah no absolutely and you know when i stepped onto the board for the coalition it was 2011 and when i stepped off the board uh nine almost 10 years later i was still one of the newer members of the board and i was starting to really worry that we weren't going to find people to take over because like there's no way you can you know 10 years is a long time to sit on a board and so i kind of pushed the, the topic and and I stepped off the board myself and was like, look, we need to get new blood in here. We need to find people to replace us. And as I stepped off, two other board members stepped off and then three people from the community stepped up. And, you know, this would have been 2020, 2021, somewhere in there. And since then, pretty much the entire board has, has uh, flipped over to all new members and it's really exciting to see because we got some great people on the board now. And not that we didn't have great people before, but you know, you could only do it for so long. And and it's really good to see the fresh blood come in and really just start to take over. And it's just really cool to get that fresh blood in there and like really just seeing where they're going to take it next. And I'm really excited for the future of the Climbers Coalition. Um, well, now I I've heard this rumor for years that the Sunday wall purchase that that was the first time that access fund had ever purchased property to preserve climbing. Is that true? It was the first direct acquisition of land at the same time or a little after they also bought uh, a small piece of rock in the Bay area called Hanley rock. And okay. also in 1990, around the same time they were access fund was involved in a purchase of Pashastin Pinnacles, but that was a partnership. They didn't come into direct ownership. It was with uh, REI, TPL, TPL is Trust for Public Land, and Conservation Alliance wasn't involved at that time. I don't think it was formed up, but it, it was a that was a group effort. And I think that land went directly to, or it was a buy and hold directly from Trust for Public Land to 
uh, state parks. But yes, this is the first or one of the first. So it's a signature conservation project for Access Fund. And uh, I just wanted to add to your earlier comment, just wanted to you know, say kudos to the current board for continuing the, the good work and hats off to, to folks that were so involved in the past, some of which I'll talk more about, like Eve Tallman and Steve Johnson, yeah. and like you already mentioned, Jesse Zacker, because there are times where someone has to kind of carry the baton. And uh, part of my role, since I was a paid staff at a nonprofit, and most of these folks are volunteering, was to keep providing the the energy, the resources, the encouragement, the everything needed to to make it feasible and uh, make sure we don't lose track of these opportunities and and uh, these climbing areas. Yeah, no, and that's important. Yeah, the, having a paid driver is something that you know there's been a lot of projects over the years as a volunteer i picked up and tried to to see through to fruition but you know you start getting going you know your real job starts to have demands personal life all that stuff and having somebody there that like that's their job is to make sure that stays on track is very important it was great working with you through all that that i got to work with you on because yeah you did a great job of it and it was appreciated so yeah yeah an example of that was what you you mentioned earlier was the television wall and uh, Mother's Buttress and Cave Buttress. That was, it, it didn't just come together in a short year. That was a multi-year right. effort. And at times, we weren't sure if we were going to be successful in acquiring that for climbing because of the price tag of the of the uncertainty of whether the local climbing community would step up to help fundraise it was a real right. concern of western colorado climbers coalition so before we even you know made an offer and tried to figure out what was going to uh, work here it, it it wasn't exactly a clean process and no acquisition ever is right we right <laughs> uh we went after greater colorado um goco funds is the the short name so it's, i believe it's called greater colorado great oh, outdoors colorado thank you um yeah. for, for those listening it's been three years since i worked at access fund so some of these old <laughs> funding uh grant applications and agencies uh, are a little outdated in my mind. And we went after that public funding with the hope that we could acquire the entire uh, set of parcels from the road all the way up through the top of the crag. And that was our goal number one. And it didn't get that public funding, but it didn't mean we weren't going to be successful. It just meant that we had to use the same conservation technique that we use for Mother's Buttress with the Petersons, as well as the original Sunday wall, where we retain access from the road, either via a sliver of land or access easement, but just protect the primary resource, the climbing area, the base of the climbing area all the way up to the top and over the top of the cliff. So we had to then subdivide 
And so this is where the loan program from Access Fund was so critical because that allowed us to buy all the parcels because the landowner wasn't willing just to subdivide and, and sell. He wanted to sell the, all the parcels as one. And so we were able to do that, take it off the market and remove that threat, then go through that subdivision process with the legal assistance of Steve Johnson. And uh, it wasn't easy, but we had to find potential um, private buyers of those parcels. There was a local um, real estate agent that I think volunteered her, her time as well. And we were able yeah, to find that. Also- she donated her commission too. That's Christy Reese. She's been Thank a fantastic uh, supporter of us for years. Uh, yeah, it, it's really great working with her. Right. So Christy was able to help on that front. Every time we sold a parcel, that went back and paid back the a portion of the access fund loan, which then went to go protect other climbing areas around the country. And then finally, with the climbing community stepping up and, and fundraising uh, over a few years, paid off that loan and we were able to make sure that all these crags were protected forever under ownership of WCCC. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just to, to back up just a step there to talk about like what that looked like. Um, so television wall, hidden Valley wall and fortress wall were purchased by the access fund in 91, 92, early nineties. And then, uh, Mother's Buttress uh, was purchased by the Petersons, John and, and Marty Peterson. Um, and then we subdivided and they kept the, the buildable land in the front and we kept the cliff and the land that was behind. Um, but what that entailed was if you were looking at Lower Mothers, that was like the very far left side of, of Lower Mothers and everything for Middle Mothers and Upper Mothers was included in that uh that Peterson purchase, uh, but everything on lower mothers and cave buttress and uh, everything to the right there was still all on private property. And then similarly on the Sunday wall area, the original access fund purchase was the Sunday wall and a little bit to the left. And then the purchase that we're talking about right now, uh, was to the left of that going to the very beginning of uh, television wall, but not including all of television wall. Uh, so there's still a lot of television wall that's still on private property, but we do have that beginning toe there. And there's a sign there that lets you know when you're uh, about to cross over onto private property. And and that property owner, we, we've worked with him in the past and we had an easement for a little while, but as happens with uh, access negotiations, sometimes uh, the land manager or the landowner changes their mind and, and they've once again closed that off uh, to climbing at this time. Uh, but it is something that we're constantly in negotiations for. Um, but yeah, so like uh, Joe was saying, uh, we had bought the entire property and then we subdivided. Uh, we kept the cliff line and a little bit in front of it so that we would have legal easement to get through and get have access to the cliff. And then we kept the property that was on top of the cliff also. And then we sold the property that was in front. And both of those properties have been sold to uh, well, the, the one in front of the television wall is sold to a couple of climbers. They're great people. I, I've met them a couple of times. Um, and the other property, they're, they're a nice couple that's, that's, uh, bought that. Um, but the other property, the, the, uh, Peterson property, they've actually recently sold that. And on that property is what I believe to be the first spec home in the Canyon. 
And what I mean by that is uh, it was the first time where somebody built a house with the intention of selling it for a huge profit. And they built a, a pretty nice fancy house. And so if they make a fortune off of that, I anticipate purchase of properties or the property values to go up, making purchase properties by climbing organizations be a lot more difficult in the future. So I've been kind of watching that and I, I'm, I've got mixed feelings where I'm like, well, you know, I hope they don't lose their, their shirts on it because, you know, that's a b- pretty big investment. But at the same time, I'm like, oh man, I really would like to buy some property in to Weep someday and I'm not going to be able to afford it if it's half a million dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, to sum it up for everyone, there really were three phases of land acquisitions for climbing access. Early 90s, 2010 with the Petersons, and the latest one was the 2014 effort that Randall and I were working yes. together on. Yes, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's been a fun process. Uh, you know, like uh, in talking to people that have been climbing in the canyon forever, uh, Sunday Wall and Mother's Buttress were like the two that were like climbing started in that Canyon and mother's buttress was owned by some climbers and they allowed access, um, for years. And then they sold it to, um, I can't remember his name, but he, he owned a gym in Scottsdale, Arizona, if I remember right. And he allowed access for a long time. And then when he decided to sell it, he's like, well, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to sell it with a bunch of climbers hanging off the cliff. And so that's when you know, we were like, okay, well, now it's time for us to buy this. So then it's it's uh, open access and it's preserved forever. So, so I, I am curious, uh, in your time at Access Fund, you know, this is just one place in which you were working, but like this was your job full time. Uh, what other areas were you buying property or helping to assist to buy property around the country? What was really amazing was working in all corners of the U.S. So I was down in the Southeast, working with SCC, Southeastern Climbers Coalition, Carolina Climbers Coalition, Red River Gorge Climbers. I was up in New England working with some great local groups there. And back here in my home state, just an hour from where I am now in Index. So the first two loans was to first Washington Climbers Coalition for the Lower Town Wall, which is, in my opinion, one of the best climbing areas in the country. And I know I'm a little biased, but uh, having (laughs) been to 300 to 400 climbing areas around the country, it it just uh, speaks to me. And I love that style of granite climbing. And Uh, also I got my first foray down in Alabama with a property uh, known as Steel. And uh, I got to meet some of the great advocates of, of that region, like Brad McLeod, who is part of the Southeastern Climbers Coalition and put together the first two pilot loan projects for the uh, conservation loan conservation campaign. And that was pretty special. So since I got my start in early 2009, put together the program, launched the, the campaign and the acquisitions with local climbing organizations in my time. And I was there through uh, 2020, was able to protect $3.2 million of climbing areas across 17 states. And so those loan funds went to 29 different climbing areas. And so that meant that those funds were able to revolve about two to three times because it was relatively small when it comes to revolving funds. It was only about one to $1.5 million in total funds. The good news is that 
most climbing areas, whether it's uh, a parcel in Unaweep or down in Tennessee, they're not multi-million dollar properties. So you could do a lot with a little. Uh, and that was able, that was really kind of critical because where we needed to, we could find other partners. For the properties that were a million or more dollars, we could partner with the Conservation Fund or Wilderness Land Trust. And, and provide a little, little additional grant or loan funds. Uh, but it, it was really special to be able to take that pot of money and put it into so many climbing areas and see the impact tripled over those 12 years that I was at Access Fund. So yeah. some of my best memories uh, of both climbing and doing this work were with these projects. And going out, to, yeah. uh, maybe doing a site visit with the local climbers, meeting the landowners, maybe playing a role in an, in an initial negotiation about purchase price and what our goal and mission was. And then going back to the office in Boulder, where I was for five years, or here where I am today in my home office of Edmonds, Washington, and just getting on the phone, emailing, doing everything else. Sometimes I would go to a climbing area once. And then I would probably spend 80, 120 hours from behind <laughs> my computer making sure that the deal went through and that the local climbing organization had the resources to then fundraise for a few years and pay back the loan. So uh, I might not be able to climb there as, as regularly as some of your listeners, but um, those one or two times that I've been to Unileap or been somewhere else uh, will always be a big part of of uh my experience yeah that's awesome and, and i'm so grateful that that you were there doing that job but then also that the access fund realized how important it was to have that job available and and to pursue that as an organization and it's just such a great thing i i just recently visited chattanooga tennessee and got to do some climbing there and i, I know that they're struggling with a lot of the same land access issues that we're struggling with here uh, my buddy Ronnie Dixon was taking me around and just telling me, like, he pointed at Craig and be like, oh, yeah, we're having this, this, and that access issue here. We're having this access issue over here. It's like, oh, man, it was all the same things I'm, I'm talking with people about here. And I was like, uh, oh, it's all the same all over the country. So it's important. It it's very important. And, and there's been so many great success stories, whether it's, uh, you know, Denny Creek or Yellow Bluff or so many different crags down in the southeast as well uh and just to bring it up to the the latest news my predecessor brian tickle at access fund he has continued this legacy and uh just this week southeastern climbers coalition closed on the purchase of the citadel which is wow. a bouldering area in alabama that i first went to in 2010 and we didn't have a willing <laughs> owner then it didn't get any traction, but those properties, those climbing areas have been a priority for conservation. And someone kept it on their radar to basically jump at those opportunities when the time was right. So a big loan just went out to Southeastern Climbers Coalition and they are fundraising. And here at Index in Washington, uh, again, my first project was the Lower Town Wall. But that was also built on some past conservation I did at the land trust uh, directly across 
um, the town of index of a forested property. So I was able to take that same conservation strategy of securing an option on the property, secure the lower town wall in 2010. And uh, just two months ago, Washington Climbers Coalition with another access fund loan purchased, uh, it doesn't have as great of a name, but the lower lump, which is directly adjacent to the lower town <laughs> wall for 120,000. So they're fundraising 100,000 and I'm helping volunteer to fundraise and, and donate as well. But that's really built on all these past efforts. So whether it was the first Unileap acquisition, uh, these things really build on themselves and continue forward because there's always a, a piece of a, an area that's not protected. Um, and Lower Lump has been on my radar for over a decade. So I was really glad yeah. to see um, Washington Climbers Coalition step up and, and uh, make that acquisition. Yeah, no, that's really cool. That, that's awesome to hear. Yeah. Um, honestly, I, I look at all this private property in Uniweep and I, I keep my eye on it all the time. And there's several people that do. And, you know, that's one of the th reasons why I'm concerned about that spec home. You know, as properties in there start hitting half a million, million dollars, it's going to be really hard to fundraise for. But uh, if we keep our eyes on it and we just kind of jump at opportunities when we have them, uh, I think that's the way that we get more access. And hearing that that's happening all over the country is, is kind of cool to hear. There is one benefit. So one option is, first off, I agree. If the land values go up, it's harder to conserve. However, uh, when you do have really expensive land, and this happened in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, uh, with much of that farmland and, and ranch land, is sometimes those potential buyers uh, can really benefit from a tax deductible donation. So whether they're yeah. a conservation buyer or whether uh, you know, they would get a financial benefit from like what we've done, which is buying the property, subdividing out the climbing area and maybe doing that portion as a donation. So you might get some, uh, for better or worse, more, more um, affluent buyers who can then go turn around and do a conservation uh, sale. So right. again, not, not great overall, uh, but when these things do happen, there are other conservation tools in the toolbox to deal with it. Yeah, well, that, and that's good to hear. I, I try not to be a sky is falling type person, but it, it's concerning. But at the same time, it's good to know that there are still options that would be feasible, even if the uh, property values started to go way up. Um, so, yeah. Can you kind of, because we've talked about the the loaning process or the loaning uh, fund and all that. Um, can you describe kind of how that works? You know, like from beginning to end. So let, let's say as the Climbers Coalition, we came in and we bought the cave buttress and the uh, television wall properties. Um, from the access fund perspective, like what did that look like as far as like the loan and then like the process on your side of that? Yeah. So how I structured the Climbing Conservation Loan Program back in 2009 has stayed relatively consistent. It's the same model that we've used, that access fund has been using for about 15 years. And each, each project is unique. So not every 
climbing area, um, makeup of the parcel, or scenario is the same, right? So you have to have some flexibility to make sure that you could have the highest rate of success. But overall, what we do is when a property is either uh, coming on the market or maybe uh, there's a relationship that a local climber has fostered, it all starts with local climbers. I want to make that, that point really loud and clear because when you're a national nonprofit and you're working across the country, you have relationships, but most of your relationships are with the local climbing community. So you really need local climbers to be on the ground making relationships with landowners and other partners because that's how those opportunities often present themselves. Either it's a threatened property and it went on the market or uh, a landowner who's held onto a property and said no for 15 years is finally able to come around and say, hey, we're thinking of moving on and I know you've come to us in the past and we want to give you, the climbing organization or climbing community, the first chance to, to buy our property. And an example of that was Bolton Dome up in Vermont, where it was on the radar for decades, um, but the landowner wasn't ready to sell. So those are the best. When you could work one-on-one -on -one with a landowner and not have to worry about it going on the market or you know having negotiations between real estate agents, that's the, my preference and always has been because you could really develop those relationships. Uh, you can move as slow or as fast as you need. So to give a quicker summary here, the property, what we often try to do is do some initial due diligence. I think climbers need to know that too. You have to pull the title, figure out if there's any access easements that cut through the climbing area. You have to potentially do an appraisal, and not all the time, but you want to make sure that you're paying what's called fair market value. So if a property is worth 100000 you ideally don't want to pay 200000 And right. you also want to have a good sense of what it's worth so you come in with a competitive offer or that you know where you are appropriately using those nonprofit funds, those donor funds, right? So all that is really critical due diligence. I'll often help the local set of volunteers with that if they don't have that expertise. And then I am not an attorney, but I'll work with either pro bono local attorneys like Steve Johnson in, in the case of Western Colorado Climbers Coalition, who he's based out of Telluride, or I'll use my templates from around the country to put together purchase and sale agreements and so forth. So the loan program is basically set up so the local organization goes under contract with a purchase and sale agreement. Let's say there's three months of a due diligence period. In that time, we'll go through the loan application process and the local group will apply for a loan, but there's, it's more back and forth. It's not just a simple application and, and we review and give our decision. There's usually some support to make sure that we address all the questions, make sure there's no, you know, buried underground storage tanks that would create a hazardous <laughs> waste scenario. And 
This was especially important in the Red River Gorge, where you had active oil wells on properties that Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition and Access Fund wanted to buy, right? So this is not a hypothetical. Uh, All land trusts and and local climbing organizations have to deal with this very important factor, right? So we do all that due diligence, put together uh, as strong of a, a package as possible and in addition, working with the local group, put together a fundraising plan. So if it's a $100,000 purchase, what is the plan to raise $100,000 over the next three years? So that could be uh, private climbers donating online. It could be major donors. It could be a foundation or a set of grants. Uh, it was really cool to see some local foundations come through even for Unaweep Canyon for some of that initial purchase. But it the fundraising plan is is really unique to the climbing community and what resources are available to to that region or to that group. And once that is set up and this is all part of that application, then it goes to the Access Fund uh, loan and acquisition committee which is made up of, of volunteers, board members, and staff, and I still volunteer uh, on that committee as well, we then either approve all loans under $100,000 or then it goes to the Access Fund Board. And if it's going to be over $100,000, uh, and then we're ready to go. Basically, the funds are wired from Access Fund and the local organization. If they're bringing cash to the initial purchase, it goes into escrow we make sure that we put together a simple mortgage document or deed of trust. And that is held by access fund and a promissory note that, that basically promises that the local group will fundraise over the next three to four years. And uh, those loan terms haven't changed much. It was 0% for the first year and two and a half percent for then the years after that. And, that was based on other models like conservation funds loan program that I put together in 2009. And as we know, interest rates have gone up to seven, yeah. 8% or more. And uh, I don't think there's been too many adjustments because really we're in it together as two local climbing organizations. So it was important for to, you know, to make it affordable. So the cost of the capital from access fund is way less than any commercial loan or even other other loans, term loans that you can get. And in the 15 years, there has been a handful, maybe a few extensions of the loan terms. So, hey, we have another 20,000 to raise, but it's going to take us another year. Can you give us an extension? And we'll help the local group fundraise some more but always give that extension. So all the funds have been revolved, all the loans have been paid back. There's the, the, the whole system of those loan documents is really just backup of the backup, right? It's if the local group just blew up and went away, um, you know, we would get the property, right? We would get the, the, the property to then figure out, okay, well, I guess it's Access Fund's responsibility to fundraise because we want to <laughs> likely then turn around and sell it off to some private buyer who would close climbing access because that's against our mission. But at least we would get control of the property 
if that local group dissolved and then be able to uh, make sure it's protected, right? So you got to protect both the financial capital of the loan program because, you know, those dollars were donated by the North Face and major donors and climbers, right? So you want to make sure you protect the original loan funds and protect these climbing areas. So it's been successful. Uh, I don't ever foresee a scenario where things go awry because when they do go awry, you always find a solution. Yeah. 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 And you've, you've kind of talked about it a little bit, but basically there's a fund that has a certain amount of money in it. And then that allows you to loan that money to a local organization. And then when that local organization is able to pay that loan back, then you have that money once again to loan out to another local organization to protect another another climbing area in the country. And it's a really great model. Um, I remember when I first stepped on the coalition and they kind of described what that looked like to me. I was just like, okay, yeah, I see why. And, and it should be locals that are are the ones that are working to raise this money because like it is where we're working. It's where we're playing and all that stuff. And the way I've always viewed it is, is it's my responsibility to take care of my local climbing area so that when you come to visit, you have a good experience. And I'm hoping that you're doing that the same in your area so that when I go to visit your area, I have a good experience. And if everybody has that attitude across the country, then we can protect a lot of areas and we can have a good experience everywhere. And, and I see that happening in a lot of places and it's really awesome. So I think that getting the locals involved with it, uh, my understanding is that the Climbers Coalition formed because a few locals saw Mother's Buttress coming up for sale and we're like, hey, Access Fund, remember when you bought Sunday Wall? Want to buy another one? And Access Fund was like, no, but if you form a Climbers Coalition, we'll support you through the whole process. And absolutely, 100% Access Fund has supported us the entire way. And not just with the loan, but with every step of the, the process. Every time we had a question, Access Fund either had the answer or they had somebody to point to to give us the answer. And my experience with it, I wasn't as involved as like Eve Tallman, as you mentioned, or, or Jesse Zacker, or uh, Mark Kenny is another one who uh, like did a lot of our uh, survey stuff, like not doing the surveys, but like our property line readjustments and all that stuff. He's another board member. You know, these are all people that were a little bit more involved, but I remember every time there was a question, it was a phone call to either you or somebody at Access Fund, and we were able to get that question answered pretty quickly. So it was really a fun process, at least my from my perspective. I don't know if Eve and Jesse feel the same way, but I think they do. <laughs> I think they both uh, got some gray hairs and lost some hair <laughs> over the process. Um, but yeah, because it did take a lot to you know step up, create WCCC, and the framework for those to, to be successful. But I do want to uh, elaborate a little bit on what you mentioned, because in the 90s, there were a handful of local climbing organizations around the country. But really, this whole concept of nonprofits uh, working to protect climbing areas was pretty new. And so originally, Access Fund, as a national organization, could just have single volunteers around the country, like Rico Thompson and others. And and he eventually came on at, on as staff, and he really was the first land acquisition staff and expert to assist groups around the country and, and protect climbing areas, whether it was uh, Golden Cliffs and uh, down in 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 uh, uh, Golden, Colorado, or others. 
but Axisone kind of took it all on as the single entity for most of those, uh, those, those, that generation, that decade. And then they realized, hey, this isn't really sustainable. Like, you know, we can't do this alone. We need more, not just more volunteers, but we need these volunteers to create organizations that could take the lead. And then we could protect more climbing areas because uh, we can't just have a few scattered land holdings around the country because we're, you know, we're a small nonprofit based in Boulder. So then in the early 2000s, there was a, a bit of a step away from land conservation and acquisitions to really focus on helping form local climbing organizations. And those were some of the years that entities like Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition came um, to exist and made a, a huge leap in climbing conservation by buying the PMRP and some of those larger properties for climbing access. And without the formation of those local climbing organizations, uh, we wouldn't be in this place today where we have over 100 local groups that could step up, whether it's a climbing access issue on public land or private land, which is focus of our conversation today. And then at the same time, after we had all these local groups, we realized, particularly with the Carolina Climbers Coalition effort to protect a crag down in, in uh, North Carolina, I, that crag was called Laurel Nam, that they had to go off and do these humongous campaigns because Access Fund only had this small grant program. And so then all of a sudden access fund wasn't doing enough to protect these climbing areas. So that's when the access fund under the leadership of its board chair, Dan Nordstrom, really said, hey, let's create a, this loan program. Let's start a capital campaign. I think the original goal was, you know, three million or more dollars. It didn't get there, but one million to one point five million was enough. And uh, that's where this came about, was that whole evolution, right? Where Access One was trying to do this, this, this thing on its own for a while with a handful of local groups. Then it focused on forming local climbing organizations around the country. And then it realized it wasn't doing enough. So it had to play a bigger role in land conservation again by creating this loan program. And not only that, some crags don't have a climbing organization. So there were certain areas where access fund had to step up to buy the climbing area and fundraise ourselves. So it was money that we used, but we held ourselves to the same set of requirements that we asked a local climbing organization. If we spend $150,000 to purchase the homestead in Arizona, which didn't have a single climbing organization that wanted to step up, but it had a set of groups from Tucson and Phoenix and, and around the state who wanted to help out with fundraising, we took ownership because we were also an accredited land trust. So we were following the same set of standards that uh, uh, that the highest quality land trusts around the country follow. And we were doing this to lead by example. We wanted to make, make sure that local climbing organizations knew that uh, by having us do this work directly, have these requirements for the loan program by making sure that we're doing our best there, that if we have these expectations on them, we put even higher expectations on ourselves when we do the same work. So that was really important as well. So 
uh, we both wanted to be an accredited land trust and where possible, we'd rather loan money to a local group and support them. That way we can get more done around the country. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really cool to get that, that history and that perspective of, of like where it all came from. That's yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So one of my things with this is uh, I get this a lot because like I used to own the climbing gym in Grand Junction and, you know, I coached a climbing team and I, I was really involved in the climbers coalition. And then I kind of like stepped away from the area and it's kind of weird to me because like I'll come back to town and people are like, Oh, that's Randall Chapman. And it's like, I'm just a, a person, you know? And so like, as I'm talking to people with this, I like to, you know, let people know that like, you're just like a real person that worked for the access fund. So if you don't mind me asking a few personal questions, uh, are you married? Yes. My uh, wife, Aaron Sambatero, and I met back in 2007 originally. And uh, she joined me on the start of this whole adventure. We, we yeah. met online back before there were dating apps and it was uh, just <laughs> match.com. And she was finishing up her grad school down in California, but wanted to move back to Seattle. And so we, we met and dated remotely in the beginning. But then I threw her for a loop. I, uh, I think in one sentence, I asked her if she wanted to go to a wedding in Tonsai because a couple of climbing friends, uh, um, Dylan and Jenna Johnson, were getting married there. And I had worked with, with Jenna at, at Feathered Friends, which is a gear shop here in Seattle. And, uh, and Jenna went on, and she's currently at Patagonia. And, and uh, I asked her if she wanted to go to this wedding in Thailand. And... I'm looking into this potential job at Access Fund. Would you be willing to move out to Colorado and <laughs> with me after you finished <laughs> grad school? So we went from remote um, for less than a year to uh, moving in together in a small uh, condo in, in, in Boulder, Colorado. So she took a leap of faith <laughs> for me and I'll be forever indebted to her uh, in supporting my crazy career of climbing and conservation. Uh, <laughs> so yes, long answer to that question of am I married? She's been a key part of, of my life and, and our, our lives together. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, great story. Uh, so that would have been what, 2008, 2009, somewhere in there. Yep. Exactly. That's when we met right on. and we, yep. And we got later married in, in uh, 2012. Yeah. Right on. That's cool. And then you have two kids together? Yes. Uh, we have twins, a boy and a girl. They are four and a half today, actually. Uh, so they're, oh, yeah. uh, they're who? They keep us on our toes. There's uh, so much energy and things going on in this house. But uh, we love taking them on adventures. We just got back from uh, a trip to Greece and India uh, so whether we're putting them on the back of a horse or in a motorcycle or, uh, on the end of a climbing rope, they're usually game for anything. And, uh, it also comes with its challenges. Sometimes we go a little, little crazy here, uh, chasing them around and, uh, lots of big emotions with four-year-olds. So, uh, <laughs> it's both, it's both amazing and hard. <laughs> yeah. I, I never had any of my own kids, but I, I've worked with kids my, pretty much my entire adult life. And I was also second oldest of six. So I've been around kids for a long time. I, I 
kind of know what you're talking about, but I haven't had any of my own to really experience it. So is your wife a climber? Yeah, she actually got into the outdoors through University of Washington. I think she got involved in there in their outdoor programs. And uh, she likes to remind me that she did start backpacking and, and climbing before we ever met. I think I did make her dive into it a little bit uh, more than she would have ever have imagined. So uh, <laughs> she, she climbs, uh, I would say we climbed a, a lot more together in Colorado when access uh, was a little easier, you know, it was 15 minutes from the door. And uh, she does some amazing work at uh, a local government here, King County, which is the county surrounding Seattle. And so she does a lot of um, equity work in, in the exec's office. So she's pretty busy. I would say climbing is not our priority, but, you know, getting outside is. So she's always down to, um, you know, whether it's her and me or now all of us as a big family of four get out and climb or uh, camp or and, and so forth. So, yes. She climbs and uh, <laughs> she supports my, my habit still because it's been important for me to keep climbing as a, as a parent. And it's, it's um, easier said than done, but I, I do try to, to make time for both um, you know, myself to get out and she gives me the space and opportunity to do that and introduce our kids to it as well. So uh uh, you know, she did get on the sharp end of the rope even a little bit in Columbus, which was cool to see. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, well, and with uh, four and a half year olds, like my experience from when I owned the climbing gym was it was really hit or miss with kids between like four and seven or eight. And so parents that were climbers, their kids would usually, you know, as long as they didn't pressure them too much, the kids would usually pick it up a little bit younger, even sometimes two or three. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, this is about the age where like, you just have to be like, you're there to let them climb. And so like having, I'm, I'm sure that you're having that experience where you're like, yeah, my kids are kind of getting into climbing, but it's not really a thing for them yet. Or, or are you experiencing something different than that? Yeah. Just like you said, there's no pressure. It has to be a hundred percent fun for them. And, you know, some days they're, they're fully psyched and into it and you are super surprised and happy for them. And other days, you know, maybe they don't feel like it. And, yep. you know, even on this climbing trip to Kalimnos, we, we had an amazing day with them climbing. And they, I think they climbed more than us. And, uh, you know, it means that maybe I'm just climbing up a 5.5 five and that's it for the day <laughs> or whatever. But, um, you know, and other days, Arn and I were able to drop them off at this climber's daycare and head up the, the slope to the Grande Grotto and, and mess around up there and, and spend some time, spend some time together. And I think the last day, yeah, we had a big vision to drop them off and go climbing after they climbed a little bit in the morning with us. And they weren't having that, right? There, there was one who wanted to come <laughs> with us. We were about to leave. Then the other one started crying. So we just had to, you know, toss in the towel and go back to the hotel pool and, and pack up the climbing gear and that's okay. Like I, I, I'm obviously really excited still about climbing all these years. Uh, and sometimes I just gotta take a big deep breath, remind myself that, you know, it, these, it's not just about me getting out and, and climbing that last day or trying that, that last climb I wanted to get on. Right. So 
you make some big adjustments, but you have to in order to make this something that, um, you know, you're going to be able to do for for years to come. So I, I want to climb for a long time. So I'll, I'll, t I'll take yeah. the opportunities when I can and not push it too far <laughs> and get in trouble. So Yeah. Yeah, right. On. I always tell people I want to do this when I'm 80 and I can't do that if I hurt myself today. And, you know, with having kids, that adds another level to that. Yeah. <laughs> he held up his arm with a cast on it right now. So, uh, yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, how did that happen? If you don't okay. mind talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, climbers are never afraid to talk about whatever ailment is uh, bothering us right now. So I think climbers <laughs> can all relate. But uh, in, in a summary, I was up climbing in uh, British Columbia in the mountains north of um, North Cascades. So part, basically an extension of the Cascade Mountains uh, called the Nisaswatch Spires, which is near Mount Sweffy for those who, who know it. And uh, we were just getting ready in the morning before we went climbing, and I was hopping across some boulders. Um, didn't have my coffee yet, and my I didn't have good approach shoes on. I had some trail running shoes, and so my foot slipped, fell on my hand, bruised it up a little bit. I still went climbing, climbed some amazing splitter cracks uh, in the granite up there. But then the month after, my wrist was really hurting me. So I still wanted to make sure I could climb in Kalimnos, but pinching was really hard. So I got a cortisone shot and I started climbing in Kalimnos and it started to really have sharp pain when I was pinching those tufas. So I had to dial it back from what I was hoping to climb and that's okay. But unfortunately, I got an MRI when I got back from that trip uh, and this is really rare, but basically potentially that fall in the mountain uh, caused that enough trauma to reduce or stop blood flow to a bone in my wrist called the lunate bone. So the bone is in the early stages of something called Kleinbox disease, where it loses blood, dies, and then you maybe need surgery. So the goal here is to wear a cast and brace for three, uh, almost three months to get blood flow back to the bone so I can get back to skiing and climbing uh, in early spring. So that's the goal. Uh, yeah. At least I know why my, why I couldn't pinch that tufa and why I, why I took <laughs> that whipper or decided to bail um, on that last climb. So it is what it is. You just kind of, I'm, I'm 41 now and uh, you know, I just got to climb smarter, train smarter. And for me, oftentimes that means, you know, taking two days of rest. If I go to the gym or go to index, yeah. just give my joints and everything more rest than uh, maybe someone else would if they were just going back to back and, and climbing a whole ton. So. Right. Yeah. Well, I hope a speedy recovery for you. That long story. Like Sorry lot, that was too long. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, so when did, when and how did you start climbing? I got into climbing at the tail end of high school. Uh, my start was with something called the adventure club. I got into hiking and then I formed up the adventure club. You know, funny side story is, um, my buddy and longtime friend, Graham Zimmerman, he was a freshman when I was a senior in high school. And he went on to become a professional climber and lead these amazing expeditions and do amazing work with Protect Our Winners. 
and uh, our paths would always come back at some point, um, but was very different. And I went off to Cornell because I wanted to, you know, do conservation work. I wanted to study environmental and resource economics so I could figure out ways to make conservation profitable, to internalize those externalities of, of, of our environmental services that is often forgotten in our, in our, in our systems. And got involved then with the Cornell Outing Club and Cornell Outdoor Education. So I'm really odd in many ways where during those college years, I first led ICE, then I led TRAD at the gunks. And then I figured out what, what, what it meant to, you know, clip a quick draw and do a changeover on a, on a road trip from New York to Seattle where we stopped in Vitavu. So before we even had a rack to climb any of those cracks in Vitavu, I think we, you know, we found a, a bolted slab to go up. So, and for those who don't know, Cornell is in upstate New York. So, uh, it's buried under snow and has these amazing canyons of ice. So the gunks were three hours away. So it just naturally was easier to go out and, and uh, lead some WI3 uh, ice flow before I could, you know, climb rock that season. So it is odd, but that's how I got into climbing. And I would say that once I got that, that um, baseline of, of leading, um, I took it to the mountains. I went back to the Cascades in the summer. I had a summer job at the Land Trust as an intern and at Feathered Friends part-time selling climbing gear and, and down jackets. And I would just go off into the Cascades and throw myself at the mountains and had some pretty fun, epic experiences. I all ended well and really launched my, my love for climbing. Uh, so that's how I got into it, I would say. Yeah. Uh, about what year was the, when you started? Probably 1999. Oh, okay. But that's, yeah, so that's going to a climbing gym. So, you know, when right. the climbing gym in Seattle just had pea gravel uh, uh, instead <laughs> of pads on the ground and very little bouldering yet. So it was pretty early on. Uh, in those yeah. yeah, I started in 2001. So you're, you're a couple of years before me. And it, my experience was also starting in a climbing gym. I took a college class and then fell in love with it. But our the teacher that I had was really good about uh, teaching us all aspects of it. And then he actually took us outdoors twice at the end of the semester. Um, so we did get to do like, we did a Joshua tree trip and we did another trip at Lake Paris, a place called big rocks. And so it kind of gave us a sport climbing and a trad climbing experience at the end of the class. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how and when I started. And back in that time, I didn't really have a, like a specific course or, one mentor who just took me from a to z it actually oh, yeah. took, took me you know four years before i ever led anything and so i i was you know going to a climbing gym and then i would go to leavenworth out here in washington and top rope uh with uh, some red webbing right Be before I, <laughs> I knew how to lead anything so in a way along with people who knew as little or as much as me kind of figured out how to trad climb and do all that so i wish it maybe awesome. was a little accelerated but you know it's just everyone everyone gets introduced to climbing in a different way and back then it was a it was a little bit of a mix of everything but it took some time before i ever led 
Yeah. Well, and having those areas where you can go and set top ropes up to cut your teeth in the beginning is so important. I mean, I had Joshua Tree for that, which a lot of stuff in Joshua Tree, you can walk up the backside, set a top rope up. And so my first oh, half a year or so of going out with friends was just going out to Joshua Tree with uh, webbing and setting anchors too. Um, that's actually one thing that I'm constantly looking for as a route developer here in on the Western Slope of Colorado is places where uh, I can put up something where people can do that because we don't have a lot of that here. Um, you know, Unweep in particular, like when I first put up other mothers, it's off to the left of upper mothers at Mother's Buttress. You know, I, it's 450 foot tall cliff and I was putting up single pitch routes on the toe of it. And I originally had a, a line that would go all the way to the top, but I came across like, I don't know, 20 feet of blank rock. And so it would have gone from like five, eight, five, nine to like five thirteen for 20 feet. And so I never put the route up, uh, or the extension of the route up, but yeah, so you can't like just go set a top rope and, and all that. So I think it's important to have those areas for beginners to, to learn, but unfortunately we don't have a lot of rock where that's possible here. Uh, how did you first hear about Uniweep? So when I came on board as a new staff person at Access Fund, it, I, I believe the Petersons were under contract or close to it, and uh, the grant was awarded. So it hadn't closed yet, but I was just jumping right in with Steve Johnson and Eve Tallman, and, and at the time our executive director was Brady Robinson. So just jumping into that initial acquisition, not as a loan project, but as a partnership just to help with the subsequent subdivision and, and purchase. Oh, right on. And then you've been to Unaweep? Have you climbed there? I have. So back in 2010, uh, it was both a little bit of a personal climbing trip and uh, a trip to Red Rock, uh, Red Rocks for an access fund conference. Uh, I think I started off with a week in Indian Creek with some climbing friends. And then I had a week in Red Rock. So I was climbing ma mainly sandstone. But on the way back with uh, an intern at the time who's now at Leave No Trace, uh, Dean Ronzoni, we stepped onto Sweet Sunday Serenade. And it uh. felt very slick because we had just come from the sandstone rock. And so <laughs> I think what you're getting at it is you know, that billion year old granite uh, took a little bit more technique. Can I have some? Uh, now, now my, uh, my kids just came downstairs and they're going after my, my coffee cake here. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've reached the point in the morning where they are up and ready to go. <laughs> One second. No problem. Right. And this is why uh, I scheduled this with Randall at uh, originally 7 a.m. So knowing that they would, it would be relatively quiet in the house with not too much noise. Okay, I'll see you soon. Go ahead. All right. <laughs> I'm back. So they got their bites of, of coffee cake. Oh, hold on. One person is locked out. Okay. Yeah, so it was pretty cool. I, it was a beautiful crag, and I think I was able to come by and see you, Randall, in 2014 after we had purchased, um, you know, that portion of TV wall and, and uh, lower mother's buttress to climb a little bit after a trail day. 
So I remember yeah. going up there with uh, Steve Johnson and, and climbing some routes like Rise of Phoenix and Dirty Harry and some others on Middle Mother's Buttress. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and uh, we had the Access Fund Trail Crew out also. Uh, just th- that made me think of that. Uh, they came out and helped us build stairs at the uh, Mother's Buttress up by Upper Mother's and by Middle Mother's. And just another way in which the Access Fund has, has supported us in all of this. All right. Two more questions. In your opinion, what is the biggest challenge climbers face when gaining asset, access to a crag in places like Unaweep? The biggest challenge is being on the ground, establishing those relationships with local landowners. And those landowners might have a similar uh, perspective or idea of conservation as you do, or they might be farmers, ranchers, any other background. And who knows, maybe they climb, maybe they don't. But creating those relationships, because if you don't have those relationships with with, uh, the local community outside of climbers, then you're really not gonna be able to put together those potential acquisitions. Because at the end of the day, all these things require trust. So whether you are working with someone who maybe doesn't care about climbing at all, they still have to trust you and your organization. Uh, You still have to be able to have a conversation about uh, the value or price of a property. And that doesn't always happen. Sometimes you'll never meet the landowner. Sometimes you just talk with some real estate agent. But if you can create those relationships, and that trust, then you can, uh, you know, gain gain that starting ground to really create some good conservation. And maybe that's not the biggest challenge, but I just always want to emphasize why why relationships are so key to these types of projects. I mean, I think the other challenge is, of course, that uh, our climbing community for for many amazing. Um, reasons. It's coming together. It's getting larger. We are uh, doing more good work together and more people are getting into climbing and there are more climbers out there. And that means that there are more impacts on the ground, whether it's to um, you know the base of the crag with erosion, whether it's water resources, and we're trying to figure out how to manage our human waste, which you know, might not be a big deal in the 90s when there's only a handful of people going out to a climbing area. But as we grow as a climbing community, we have to embrace these these bigger impacts and, and figure out how to address them. So yeah, sometimes climbers are our own worst enemies when it comes to access. Uh, I've seen, you know, climbers who mean well uh, go out and buy a climbing area. And then it's just so much because there's more climbers, um, there's more people using an area and sometimes all it takes is one argument and it's closed. And I think that's really why uh, nonprofit entities like Western Colorado Climbers Coalition is so important because you might be a well-minded climber and then 10 years down the road, you're like, you know what? I've had enough. There's just too many of us. I can't manage this much use of the climbing area. So we've seen that uh, play out across the country places like Kootenai Canyon up in Montana or the Red River Gorge uh, with the closure of roadside 
15 years ago that was eventually transferred to a nonprofit entity by the original climbing landowners and has some permitted access. So uh, those are two big challenges. One, making sure you have those relationships. You know, you can't just be in the silo of the climbing community. You have to think about what are other, what are other users thinking about? What's their perspective? What are landowners concerned about? And second, just the, the fact that our climbing community has grown or doubled so much in the last five to 10 years that it's going to make sometimes these uh, projects more challenging. Uh, because it, anytime you're introducing that much recreational use, there are going to be entities that see it um, as unwelcomed. So yeah. there are more opportunities for conservation in Unuit Canyon, as you described, going through the the canyon from, I think you went from, from west to east there, or so from east to west. Yeah, and, from uh, the junction side. <laughs> from the Grand Junction side. So just keep those two things in mind. And I'm speaking specifically, you could talk about other big challenges and threats. Uh, there's a lot ongoing right now with, um, for example, fixed anchors and wilderness that we will yeah. we'll save for another day. And you could learn yeah. more from your local climbing organization and access fund right now. Yeah, well, and that's something that is hitting us here on the Western Slope because Black Canyon of the Gundinson just passed their, yeah. Um, yeah, that's an uh, that's a whole that could be its own podcast. So, <laughs> yep, yep, we'll leave it right there for now. Yeah, well, and I'm writing a guidebook, and I get from some people that I shouldn't write the guidebook because that's going to draw more people to the area, and I, I understand that and I sympathize with that. Um, but one of the th- things that I look at is yes, it'll bring more people to the area, but people don't work to protect areas they don't care about. And what I mean by that is, uh, like I was out, you know, I'm from Los Angeles originally and I moved here in 2005 and in 2016, I went back to LA for a couple of years for a job. And while I was working there is when all the bears ears, uh, stuff got rescinded by Trump. And while it was all going on, I was talking to people that had no idea that there was even such a thing as BLM land or forest service or national park land. And so to them, it was just like, oh, all these hippies are really bothered by this thing and why should I care? Um, But they had no knowledge of it. They had no idea what it meant. So to them, it was just like, oh, why should I care about this? And I think that that's one of the reasons why I do want to bring more people to someplace like Unaweep where we're trying to protect more land because the more people that care about it, especially if like, you know, like I was talking about the spec home, if that sells for a fortune, we're going to need more people caring about Unaweep to be able to purchase the next property as it comes available because we're going to have to raise more money to be able to do so. And it's a double-edged sword though, because then it means more people are at our crags. And, you know, that's as a route developer in the Canyon, I'm always consciously thinking about that. You know, like recently, uh, I guess it was 2020, uh, I found the Wildcat complex at the same time as Pasquale did. And my whole thing was like, well, we need another place to draw some of the people to because uh at the time it was during the middle of the shutdown and every single time i passed mother's buttress there was way too many cars in that parking lot and so it was like we need to spread the people out more in the canyon so we don't have as much of a visual impact in any one location but then that's a double-edged sword too because now we're for more expansive in the canyon and we're more visible because we're in more places at least to the locals that live there and and they're 
they're well aware. They live there. They're they're watching all this as it happens. And so trying to to find that balance between having enough people care about the area, but then also not having too much of a visual impact, I think is kind of uh, this weird place that Unuweep is going to be in, in in perpetuity. I don't see it ever changing. You know, Unuweep is one of those places where if it wasn't for all the private property, it would be a, a worldwide destination. I, I have no doubt about that. I mean, I I stare at this one cliff that is completely surrounded by private property all the time, and I'm picking out lines on it. And I just don't go over there because it's not accessible. And there's probably 15, 20 cliffs like that in that canyon. And so it gives me hope for the future that, you know, maybe someday we can somehow negotiate access or purchase access to those properties. Um, But finding that balance in between where we don't, you know, tick off too many of the neighbors and shut down too much stuff along the way, that that to me, it seems like the biggest challenge in the canyon at this time. Randall, is Quarry Wall currently open or is that closed? Quarry Wall is open. And Quarry Wall is a kind of an interesting... Quarry Wall is interesting because it's all access from the top off of Divide Road. And you have to rappel down in and then climb back out. And most of that is on public land. Uh, but the Massey family does own uh, a good chunk of that cliff. And in fact, the, the cliff has been named the Massey Wall. And uh, Jesse Zacker and a few other people did a good job of uh, negotiating access to that. And at this time, it is still currently open. But you know, that is a, an example of a place that, you know, at some point they could just be like, you know what, you guys have done too much. You've, you've upset us too much, or there's just too many of you. And so that's always a concern that we have, uh, we could lose some really great routes. I, I understand that that section's got some, some of the classics are on that section of cliff. So I haven't climbed um, there, but I do remember working with Jesse and a representative from that family about a potential recreational lease. So I was just curious where it's at, right? Because a lease is a, a great tool as well, but it's not it's not permanent conservation or access. So right. it's another good example of the ebb and flow of why it's so important to keep those relationships positive and address the impacts of use in a way that's sustainable. So you either can work out a long-term conservation uh, strategy or, or maintain its existing use because you could have that access today, but you could lose it tomorrow. And then maybe yeah. you can get it back again in 10 years. But for, for the climbing community to know that not all these things are uh, a given, that it's not some right for us to climb on these crags, that we actually have to work to maintain access and be good stewards uh, it's, it's a, a privilege we can't take advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the sun towers are a prime example of that where, you know, we had access that was negotiated by Bob and Lisa Eagle for many years. And then the property sold and the new property owners was like, Oh no, no way. And so we, we lost tried, access though. to, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. And remember um, those calls with the Eagles about trying to figure out how we can, um, maybe you know, subdivide a portion of that crag so they didn't have to worry about the liability of it in their backyard. Yeah. And I remember also the access fund sent us a package. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll link that if that's okay with, uh, on the website for this episode. Um, but it was basically like, uh, how the access fund would help protect the property owner and what access might mean and all that stuff. And I remember 
when all that was happening, I was just stepping off the board, but I was kind of there for the uh, beginnings of those conversations. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was heartbreaking. And, you know, that was right about the time that I had found the wildcat complex with Pasquale and was like, you know, well, if we're going to lose the sun towers, which was like the best, uh, beginner friendly crag in the Canyon at the time, uh, and had been, you know, since it was developed, uh, we needed something else to replace that. And so my goal with uh, Wildcat, with Wildcat 1 was to put up as many moderates, safe moderates as possible so that we wouldn't have, or we would still have places for beginners to go. Um, but then Bob and Lisa also stepped up and they put up a bunch more stuff at the Beehive and the Twin Owls. And, you know, there's almost as many routes there now as there was before the Sun Towers uh, shut down. And the, the quality of the routes is, is every bit as good. Yeah. Uh, maybe even a little bit better because they're more experienced putting these up. <laughs> And that's great to hear. I think the lesson learned from the Sun Tower story, and I, I apologize, I haven't had a chance to listen into um, Bob and Lisa's story with you yet. But I'll I'll just say the lesson learned there is that don't take climbing access for granted, especially on private lands. Just because we've had access for twenty plus years uh, doesn't mean that could change with a blink of an eye with a change of ownership. So. That's why it's important when you have the opportunities to uh, gain access and, and, and put in conservation mechanisms when you can. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, all right. So one more question. Uh, who else should I reach out to to try and get an interview with uh, that might have a little bit more of the history of Unaweep? Well, I think I've, I've mentioned the folks I worked with closely already. Uh, Eve Tallman as you know, her profession was a librarian and, and for many years on the WCCC board. She's your, I would say, the, the best historian when it comes to all this. Um, Steve Johnson up in Telluride has a deep knowledge of what it took to put together some of these conservation acquisitions. So we worked hand in hand together. And I know you all, you already plan to talk with, with, with Jesse. So, when Access Fund yeah. works with local climbing organizations, yeah, sometimes we'll join in on board calls with, with the larger board and others on these local groups, but oftentimes we have one point person. So I only have a partial picture of what it took to do all the local fundraising or what it took to put together the trail project, right? That was Randall leading that effort, for example, not me. I was mainly the guy in the background putting together the legal documents and giving the advice and, and, uh, and steps in terms of you know putting together the acquisition acquisition or easement transfer so a lot of work in the background um but that took a lot of people on the forefront doing the other work with the climbing community with the trail work the stewardship and the fundraising ah awesome all right well thank you very much for your time uh it's been great and it, it was really good uh, you know, I, I know my perspective from the Climbers Coalition side, but it was great, great to hear a perspective from the Access Fund side. And I hope that people enjoy this. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Randall.